Hey everyone, I'm Megan, and you are listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Welcome back, and today is part two of the case of Sarah Ann Ottens. Today, I don't have any additional news or updates, so let's get started. After the indictment and conviction of James Wendell Hall in the murder of Sarah Ottens, it appeared to be a closed case. But after many years, it was revealed that the state had been hiding evidence all along, which would prove to be a deadly mistake. Now, for those of you listening who haven't listened to part one of the murder of Sarah Ann Ottens, please go back and listen to that first. So to recap, Sarah Ottens was found murdered in her dorm room on March 13, 1973. And about six months later, James Wendell Hall was charged with her murder, and on May 23rd of 1974, he was found guilty of second-degree murder. And that is where the second part of this case begins. One thing to point out from here, to backtrack a little, is that on the day James Hall was found guilty of murder, his defense attorney, William Tucker, immediately filed a motion for a new trial. Now, I left this out intentionally, so those of you listening wouldn't know the direction that this case would be heading unless you just couldn't wait and did some research of your own. So on the date of his sentencing, July 3rd, 1974, Judge Schultz, who oversaw the trial, overruled the defense's motion for a new trial and proceeded with sentencing. It was made very clear at this point that James Hall and his attorneys were not going to sit back and take this conviction. They were ready to fight. Tucker had brought on an assistant defense attorney, Bruce Walker, who expressed that if the appeals were not granted, they were fully ready to take their motions up to the Supreme Court in a very short time. In Judge Schultz's ruling, he summarized that James Hall received a fair trial and that his defense counsel had been skillful and thorough. But of course, Hall's attorneys didn't agree and claimed multiple small errors occurred in the trial. And when you look at all of them collectively, he in fact did not receive a fair trial. There had been some pretty harsh allegations at this point regarding the jury that there had been discussions about the case outside of the courtroom and allegations that other jurors were drinking alcohol at dinner during their deliberation. So, of course, they were trying to imply that not all 12 jurors were of clear mind when they found him guilty. A few hours after Hall was denied a new trial, Judge Schultz sentenced James to 50 years in the Fort Madison State Penitentiary but a request to transfer to Anamosa Men's Reformatory per Hall's attorney's request was granted so that James could continue his education. Not only that, the judge also delayed execution of the sentence until July 16th to allow time for an appeal to be filed and a $50,000 appeal bond to be raised. Now, this is where things get a little interesting. During the trial, James had been out on bond, so naturally... Someone convicted of murder, you would think, would be remanded into custody to start serving their sentence, right? Well, that's what I thought, but in this case, that didn't happen that way. 
Within about a week of James Hall's sentencing, his attorneys had already filed an appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court, which would likely take anywhere from 12 to 18 months, and filed an appeal bond of $50,000, in which they expected to post the bond in that time. Now, to explain this, an appeal bond, or also called a supersedious bond, can be done when someone convicted of a crime has appealed their conviction, since appeals can take quite a long time. But what I can't figure out is that appeal bonds are usually not granted when it comes to cases of murder, because in this case, James Hall was found guilty of murder, which would mean he posed a threat to the community, and usually appeal bonds are not granted in cases like this one. So if the judge ruled that James Hall received a fair trial, it's kind of baffling why he would go to additional lengths to accommodate him in regards to allowing an appeal bond at all and to accommodate his schooling needs. So James Hall's attorney filed the appeal on July 9, 1974, and the judge granted the delay in sentencing until July 16th. During this time, there had been a rally in support of James and the group called themselves the Committee to Free James Hall. This group consisted of members of the Black Student Union Revolutionary, the Student Brigade, and other interested persons. On the 16th, Hall's bond hadn't been posted, so he was taken to Fort Madison Penitentiary around 8 a.m. At the time of James's conviction, he was still enrolled in classes at the University of Iowa, and in the month of September, two months after he was incarcerated, James Hall's request for transfer was approved, and he was then transferred to Animosa Men's Reformatory. And per his attorneys, they were still working on raising the money for his appeal bond. About three months later, on December 20th of the same year, Hall's attorneys filed a brief and arguments in Hall's appeal for the second-degree murder conviction in which the Iowa Supreme Court was being asked to review the majority of the arguments that had been presented in spring of 73, when James' first appeal was denied. And about three weeks later, on January 8th of 1975, James's $50,000 appeal bond was posted in Johnson County District Court. It was posted by the Argonaut Insurance Company of Menlo Park, California. So while all of this was going on later that same month, it was revealed that Hall was facing forgery charges in Johnson County District Court. County Attorney Jack Dooley and Hall's attorneys had agreed to continue the case until after the Supreme Court appeal was resolved. The joint motion by both prosecutors and defense attorneys for continuance said a possible retrial on the open charge of murder could be prejudiced by pursuing the forgery charge at that point in time. James had been indicted for forgery by a Johnson County grand jury on December 4, 1973. Apparently, he was being charged in connection with a forged check to a store in Iowa City that had allegedly been written February 26, 1973 but no other details were provided. Things went quiet in the case and the appeals process until the end of February 1975, when the Iowa Attorney General's office was granted a two-week extension in the deadline for filing response to the James Hall murder conviction appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court. The Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice C. Edwin Moore granted the extension on February 26th per request of Assistant Attorney General Nancy Shamanic, Attorneys for the state said they needed more time to prepare their response to the lengthy appeal brief filed by Hall's attorneys. 
The attorney general's office was originally given until January 17th, in which the Supreme Court had granted an extension until February 28th, and the new extension now gave them a deadline for filing their brief until March 14th. Prosecutors filed their brief, and Hall's appeal was then scheduled for May 15th. Hall's attorneys filed a brief to ask the court to order his acquittal or to send the case back to district court for a new trial. The brief brought about 42 issues that they deemed would collectively constitute a violation of almost everything for which our system of justice and fair trial stands, and the verdict of the jury was against the weight of evidence that was presented at Hall's trial. Essentially, their argument was that the jury was contaminated by talk outside the courtroom, that some evidence was improperly admitted, other information improperly suppressed, and that the trial judge and prosecuting attorneys did not adhere to proper standards in their conduct during the trial. But their argument wasn't enough, and on Wednesday, November 12th, the Iowa Supreme Court upheld the second-degree murder conviction. The court did leave open the possibility of granting a new trial under the stipulation that only if there was any evidence that could be found which was suppressed at the trial which could possibly exonerate James. The court then ordered that James should be allowed to examine transcripts of grand jury proceedings that led to his indictment and that he should have a new trial if the transcripts disclose any exculpatory evidence not heard in the trial. Justice Clay Legrand's 54-page opinion found no grounds in any of the 42 issues raised by Hall's attorneys for reversing the conviction. Hall's lawyers accused the prosecuting attorney, Gary Woodward, of misconduct both before the grand jury and during the trial. They also claimed that the trial judge, Louis Schultz, made mistakes on rulings on admission and suppression of evidence and in allowing the case to go to the jury rather than Hall's acquittal. Tucker and Walker, of course, also allege wrongdoing in the conduct of several jurors, including the fact that eight jurors had liquor with their dinner while in recess after they had begun deliberations on a verdict. Even though the Supreme Court's conclusion was that there was insufficient argument or evidence to reverse his conviction, they pointed out their disapproval of Woodward's conduct before the grand jury. Hall's argument was the fact that there was nothing associating him to the crime or seen except a print of his left thumb found in the room Sarah was killed. Even though that can seem damning, he is right. When it's stated that the evidence doesn't show when or the circumstance under which it was left there. After James's appeal was denied, he was able to remain free on appeal bond for another 30 days. During this time, Hall would be allowed to review grand jury transcripts, which consisted of 1,250 pages. The high court did agree, though, with Hall's attorneys that Gary Woodward had presented misleading evidence to the grand jury, which intended to show that Hall had a bad moral character and violent nature. In January of 1976, Hall's attorneys requested a hearing stating that they had found in grand jury transcripts there were names which had been brought up in grand jury meetings, specifically additional suspects, that had not been brought up in trial. On January 9th, Judge Schultz, in a closed courtroom with defense attorneys and state prosecutors, discussed the possibility of a new trial in the case. All spectators and reporters were ordered to leave the courtroom as it was discussing grand jury testimony, which is not made available to the public. 
If a new trial at that point was then denied, James would have to return to prison from his appeal bond to continue serving his 50-year sentence. By the end of February 1976, James Hall had lost in his third attempt for a new trial. So there are a lot of dates in here I want to go over with you to make sure I didn't lose anyone. James's first appeal was on the day that James was convicted of Sarah's murder, which was later denied by Judge Schultz in 1974. The second appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court November 12, 1975, and the third attempt again by Judge Schultz on February 27, 1976. Hall's attorneys had two options. One was to appeal the ruling for a new trial by Judge Schultz, or two, to take the case to the Supreme Court. James's attorneys decided to start off by appealing Judge Schultz's February 27th decision and take that appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court for a rehearing. And this takes us to January of 1977. So four appeals later, the court agreed to give Hall's lawyers 14 days to file motion for a rehearing. And if they didn't get the motion filed by the deadline, the court would then issue an order for Hall to return to prison to carry out his 50-year sentence. So that's what his attorneys did. They filed another motion for appeal, but they knew that this was his last route on the state level and any further appeals would need to happen at a federal level, which was a very slim chance. The reconsideration was denied and Hall's conviction upheld by the last state appeal allowed. James's attorneys then filed with the U.S. Supreme Court and also requested that James be granted to remain out on appeal bond until the U.S. Supreme Court decided whether or not to hear the case, and that request was granted. While waiting on a response from the U.S. Supreme Court, Hall's attorneys advised James to hire a new lawyer for the Supreme Court, and he brought in Ross E. Brown of East Orange, New Jersey, who took over. In May of that year, Ross Brown filed a motion with the U.S. Supreme Court, and in October, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal. Two weeks later, Hall returned to prison to serve a sentence. So to recap, James Hall had been out on bond during his trial, was incarcerated for six and a half months, then he was out on bond from January of 1975 to October of 1977, almost three years. Less than two years later, in August of 1979, Hall went up before the parole board after only serving a little over two years in prison by this time but he was denied. Now that all appeals had been exhausted, we have to go back to James's forgery charge, which in July of 1980 was dismissed. By this time, the charge was seven years old, having occurred in February of 1973, before Sarah's murder. The county attorney, Jack Dooley, asked that the forgery charge be dismissed because in part, Hall was already serving a 50-year sentence, but also stating restitution had been made a choice I'm sure he would later regret. Everything went quiet for several years, and obviously James was still being denied parole at this point, until 1983, when things took a drastic turn. A group of attorneys through the University of Iowa for post-conviction relief raised questions of whether the state held evidence in the trial and went back to Johnson County District Court for post-conviction relief. Allegations surfaced that former Iowa Attorney General for Johnson County, Carl Goetz, which should sound familiar from Part 1, 
and a state law enforcement officer were being accused of misconduct in both the investigation and prosecution of Hall. On top of that, the new Assistant Iowa Attorney General Michael Sheehy admitted on July 20th, 1983, that Hall's rights were violated and that a judge should grant him relief for the violation. But shortly after this, a spokesman for the Attorney General's office claimed that the state's admission was a misunderstanding between Sheehy and his superiors in the state headquarters. A few days after this, an article had come out in which a new state prosecutor had supposedly come forward on July 5th with the claim that they believed at this time they would have to, in legal terms, confess error to the court. In other words, admit to the court that a mistake substantial enough to make the court grant a new trial. They had located in an analysis of the BCI investigative report file material which they believed at that point was exculpatory and which would almost certainly cause the court in this post-conviction relief action to grant James Hall a new trial in the charge of murder. Portions of records were missing in which the state had to obtain records from Hall's former attorneys, and documents from the state were then handed over to Hall's new attorney at that point named Paul Papik, and the information implicated Two other suspects identified in-court documents as Alan Doe and Bernard Doe. In both cases, the suspects had alibis. A couple of months later, a new witness came forward who was at the time an inmate in an Iowa prison. The inmate claimed a man named William Charles Burbridge killed Sarah Ottens. According to documents revealed later, one of the suspects in that case was actually determined to be William Charles Burbridge. The state then attempted to say that a communication breakdown in July of 1983 had occurred and that Hall didn't receive a fair trial and now disagree with those claims stating he did. The documents also allege that state investigators made false statements to a judge in order to obtain a search warrant for Hall's dorm room after Sarah's death. A new trial was granted and began on October 13th of 1983. And in the court proceedings, the man who headed the investigation of Sarah's murder, if you recall, was BCI agent John Jute. Agent Jute testified that two witnesses early in the case identified someone other than James Hall as a man at Otten's dorm room the day she died. Two different women stated they saw a man named William C. Burbridge at Otten's dorm. They identified him from nine photographs they were shown. In those nine photos was also one of James Hall, but neither women identified Hall as the man they had seen. In September of 1973, after Hall's indictment, the same two women were shown five photos of suspects in the case, and Hall's photo was included, but again, the women didn't identify him. However, Burbridge's photo wasn't included in those five photographs. Now, if you remember from part one, the shaky testimony of Rosemary Jones, and now in 1983, her last name was Danke, told detectives she saw Burbridge at Sarah's door. But of course, during the first trial, she claimed she didn't know who it was and later changed her story and said the man was Hall. On Tuesday, November 22, 1983, James Hall's second-degree murder conviction was overturned. And within 24 hours, friends and family of Hall's raised money to post his bail. Now the clock was ticking. 
and the state had 90 days to decide whether to recharge him with Sarah's murder. A few days later, on November 25th, the Associated Press spoke with Sarah's mom, Myra Ottens, who said, quote, We assumed by his fingerprint being in Sarah's room that he was the one. Now I don't know what to think. Judge Chapman ruled that Hall's constitutional right to a fair trial was violated when prosecutors withheld material from defense attorneys and failed to correct false testimony that might have affected the outcome of the trial. Hall was then released on a $20,000 bond, and Mrs. Otten said she and her husband Robert had felt frustrated during the previous case because they were kept in the dark about what was happening. She stated she nor her husband were ever informed that there were two other suspects in her daughter's murder. Her feelings toward Hall, quote, I feel no real bitterness toward him. I was glad that we had found the one who did this terrible thing and that he was going to be punished. We assumed he was guilty because the verdict said so, but I don't know now if he goes free. Are they going to go after someone else for this or is it going to be left this way? Judge Chapman said one report, which should have been turned over but wasn't, involved the hair found on Sarah's blouse or sweater, depending on the source. The withheld report said that the hair couldn't be racially typed, and the hair couldn't be sexually typed because the hair was diseased. Chapman also agreed that Agent John Jude's actions were made in reckless regard for the truth regarding the search warrant for Hall's dorm room. Now fast forward to August of 1984 and a Johnson County grand jury refused to reindict James Hall, which had convened July 31st. Spokesman for the state prosecutor's office, Bill Roach, said they did not plan to take any further action against Hall, that is, unless new evidence would come to light. According to an interview, Hall claimed the evening of Sarah's murder, he was downtown, in his dorm room, and at some bars. He admitted he was in Iowa City, but he wasn't with Sarah when she was killed but police knew all of that information 11 years earlier. Whether James was guilty or not, withholding the information caused the case to fall apart, allowing James to be released from prison. And now that all the facts had been released, the state was unable to get a grand jury indictment to retry James Hall for the brutal murder of Sarah Ann Ottens. So that's it. James Wendell Hall was now a free man and his conviction overturned. So I know some of you are asking, is this the end? Well, sadly for Sarah Ottens, it is. James Hall was never retried for her murder nor anyone else because prosecutors felt they had the right guy from the beginning. After James's release, no new information has come to light regarding the investigation into her murder. But with advancements in forensic testing, if there is any physical evidence that the state kept, which I would hope they kept it all, but you never know, it is a possibility there could still be answers for Sarah's family, but that's not where this ends for James Hall. And if you're not getting Making a Murderer vibes yet, you will. In March 1992, just over 19 years, almost to the day after Sarah was killed, James Wendell Hall's name would resurface, this time in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. On Friday, May 20th, Cedar Rapids police received a call where they found an unresponsive woman, 31-year-old Susan Marie Hadjik, in her home. She was taken to Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids, and she was pronounced dead on arrival. Police at the scene confirmed two people claiming to be friends of the victim were on scene, and they were the ones who had called authorities. They were Deborah Mayfield 
and Deborah's reported boyfriend at the time, James Wendell Hall. Detectives assigned to the case immediately suspected foul play in the young woman's death and were waiting for the BCI crime lab for the results of tests for possible drug and or alcohol use. They also noticed discoloration marks found on Hadjik's neck, and an autopsy was then completed over the weekend, but results initially were inconclusive, although they were able to conclude that Sarah was not sexually assaulted. She was found at 1.40 a.m. Friday on her bedroom floor. Deborah and James claimed they found the body after they saw the light from a TV flickering in her dark house and figured she was awake, so they had stopped to say hi thinking she was up. They entered the house through an unlocked back door and found Susan's clothed body on her bedroom floor and her eight-month-old baby daughter, Kylie, was asleep in her bedroom in the home. The next day, police detectives announced that Susan's cause of death was manual strangulation and manner of death was a homicide. Almost immediately, people remembered James's conviction in the Sarah Ottens murder. Further detail on Susan's autopsy, according to court documents, revealed that medical personnel noted that Susan had scratches on her neck, which prompted detectives to obtain court-ordered search warrants. Detectives theorized that whoever strangled her might have skin or some other material under their fingernails. The court granted the detectives permission in the first hours of the investigation to take samples of blood, saliva, and scrapings from underneath the fingernails of James and Deborah. Detectives also acquired the same permission to test Milton Turner Jr., who was Susan's boyfriend at the time and the father of eight-month-old Kylie, and he was seen at her house the evening prior to her body being found. Shortly after Susan's death on Wednesday, March 25th, James Hall gave an interview in the Gazette. James claimed he knew that once again he would be in the spotlight upon finding his friend dead and knew that many people still believed he was responsible for Sarah's murder. Apparently, Deborah knew of his background, so when they discovered Susan, she told him not to touch anything which I think is a little weird that the first thing you think of is you have a past with a murder conviction, so don't touch anything. But Hall claimed he used cardiopulmonary resuscitation on Susan. Then when he realized that she was dead, he immediately called 911. According to Hall, he and Susan had been friends for three or four years at that point, and that Hall and Mayfield had been at Susan's home Thursday evening, along with a number of other people who were in and out. About a month into the investigation, the Cedar Rapids police were starting to consider genetic fingerprinting as their best chance of cracking the case and a good chance that DNA testing would be able to be used. Unlike the Sarah Ottens case back in 73, DNA testing had come quite a ways by 1992. Samples taken from all three were sent to the IDCI lab in Des Moines. Basically, DNA fingerprinting back then is what we know today as basically just finding a match for the blood. We know now that DNA is specific to every single individual, whereas it was still a newer idea in the early 90s. Comparing the DNA pattern from the blood of a suspect with samples recovered at a scene, experts could then determine if there is a match. Back then, they were able to take samples usable, including skin, semen, blood, or hair. And of course, those ideas are very common to us nowadays. Almost four months later in August, a grand jury meeting was held regarding the case, and there was a lot of speculation around the fact that James Hall was the focal point of it. At this point, Hall felt that he was being set up for another murder, 
but when he received a grand jury subpoena, he claimed he had learned his lesson and that the last time he denied to appear before the grand jury was per a lawyer's advice. So we now know the reluctant witness in the grand jury meetings of the murder of Sarah Ann Ottens was in fact James Hall. He claimed he would just go in and tell the truth and see what happened. Hall knew finding the body, combined with his past, that he would be considered a convenient suspect and claimed if the prosecutors wanted to tailor a case to make him fit as a suspect, they could do it. After several days of grand jury testimony, Hall had a case of deja vu when he was indicted for the murder of Susan Hadjik. Susan's father was pleased with the outcome and had thought all along that Hall was in fact the one who had killed Susan. His bond was set at $1 million, certainly a far larger number than his previous indictment. Amidst the tragedy, a shining moment to bring some happiness to the Hadjik family was when Susan's sister Diane and Diane's husband Rob finalized the adoption of then 14-month-old Kylie Hadjik. The family expressed struggle in a different way. Because Kylie wasn't taken away from Susan, Susan was taken away from Kylie. But it was in a way a beautiful moment in time nonetheless. The trial was moved from Cedar Rapids to Scott County or Davenport, Iowa, and it began on April 5, 1993. According to an article in the Des Moines Register by Deborah Wiley, Hall changed his story throughout the investigation. And not only that, the friend Deborah Mayfield, who at the time was Hall's girlfriend, changed her story six days after Susan was found. I couldn't find any articles from her original statement to authorities, but in her new version, she said Hall had woken her up from her sleep about midnight and told her, quote, if you don't come with me, I'm a dead man. One thing to make mention of is at this time, James Hall, along with Deborah Mayfield and Susan Hadjik, as well as other acquaintances, were all known drug users. But not only that, apparently James Hall had become a confidential drug informant for federal agents in January of 92, just two months before Susan was murdered. I don't know if this fact plays into the case at all, but it is definitely an interesting sidebar. In the trial, fingernail scrapings of Hall and Mayfield revealed nothing, and no material was found under Susan's nails because they were too short. There had been several fingerprintings and physical searches of the home, but nothing useful had been found. Turner, who you remember was Susan's boyfriend at the time, said that he had showed up to Susan's home around 6 p.m. on the 19th and spent several hours there, but said he left around 10.30 p.m. to spend time with friends to celebrate his birthday. So during the time that Susan was presumed to have been killed, Turner was seen with friends between two different bars that evening. When Turner showed up to Susan's home, he said Hall had answered the door alone. Susan told him that Hall was there to see her brother, even though her brother had moved out one week earlier. Another witness called was a man named Phil Parker, and he had a very disturbing story to tell. According to Phil, Hall said if they went over to Susan's house, they could have sex with her, and Phil saw Hall smoking crack cocaine from a glass pipe in Susan's living room. He said Hall at some point went to Susan's bedroom, and he kept calling to her from the bedroom, but she wouldn't join him there and continuously asked him to leave. Phil believed that Susan had used some cocaine in the bathroom, but he didn't see her do it. Hall and Phil left in Hall's car to the other side of town, and according to Phil, Hall kept saying that he was going back and that she shouldn't have dissed him like that. 
Parker ran into Hall one or two days after the murder, and Hall acted as if he didn't know anything about it. Phil claimed he accused him of the murder in which Hall replied, quote, Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. And Hall told Phil not to tell anyone they were at Susan's home on the 19th. But Parker's story had some inconsistencies as well, including the fact that he had originally given the police a fake name and said it was because he didn't want to admit that he had arranged for a friend, Kenneth Johnson, to sell $40 worth of crack cocaine to Hall prior to the two going to Susan's house. Hall had told a police officer just hours after finding Susan that he feared for his life, which was found on taped phone conversations, and they were played in court. Hall believed the police had leaked his involvement as an informant and word was getting around on the street. But again, to what I mentioned earlier, I don't see how Susan's death played into Hall being an FBI informant. You would think if word was getting out, he would be the target, not someone he knew. Hall went on to tell police that Antonio Carr would have been upset with Susan because she allegedly stole $3,000 in drugs from him, and Hall's description of the events of Friday evening dramatically differ from those of Phil's. The state prosecutor, Jerry Vandersanden, was in the works of getting Antonio Carr to testify, but Carr had previously invoked his Fifth Amendment right to avoid incriminating himself on drug charges. Prosecutor Vandersanden was willing to grant the man immunity in exchange for his testimony. During trial, Michael Peterson of the DCI lab got on the stand and said there was nothing forensically linking James Hall to Susan's murder. And based on taped interviews, Hall admitted to having been to Susan's place more than 20 times, but refused to answer whether they had been intimate. In the final day of the state's case, Antonio Carr did come in to testify and claimed all allegations against him by Hall were completely false. Carr said he and Hall went to Susan's one night sometime before her death. He said he got drunk and went to sleep on the floor. The next morning, Carr said Hall was asleep on the bed, but Susan was not around. Carr then woke Hall up and the two left, and that was the only time he had met Susan. The case was based completely on circumstantial evidence. There was no physical evidence tying Hall to the scene other than the fact that James had no alibi and no explanation of waking Deborah up at 12 o'clock in the morning to go over to Susan's house. He claimed they had both stopped for cigarettes and drove around town for about an hour before driving to Susan's home, and when they arrived, Susan's body was still warm. James and Brenda gave stories that constantly changed throughout the course of the investigation, but I can't be sure if their stories change in the trial because there just isn't enough information that I could find. But one thing that is important to point out is that Phil Parker also has no alibi for the time of the slaying. The defense's strategy was to throw as much reasonable doubt as possible and give multiple additional suspects, hoping that would provide enough reasonable doubt to the jury. With the conclusion of the trial, the case went to jury of six men and six women, and after 14 hours of deliberation, James Wendell Hall was found guilty of first-degree murder, which carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison. Although there have been attempts at appeals, James Wendell Hall remains incarcerated to this day at the Iowa Department of Corrections in Des Moines, Iowa.
In the case of Sarah Ottens, it's hard to say whether James Hall was truly guilty or targeted by investigators and prosecutors, but either way, their negligence towards his conviction eventually let James go free. Not only that, it gave James Hall the chance to take a life and ruin a family forever. Or does everyone have it wrong and James is just a victim of unfortunate coincidence? Either way, at this point, James Hall is behind bars where he will likely stay, but the family of Sarah Otten still needs answers. So if you have any information regarding Sarah's murder, please contact the IDCI at 515-725-6010 or the University of Iowa Police at 319-335-5022. You can also email them at police at uiowa.edu. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in in two weeks for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. You can follow Secrets in the Cornfield, Iowa's Unsolved, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can find the show on Facebook, Secrets in the Cornfield Podcast. And if you have a case request, comment, or question, you can send me an email at sitcpod at gmail.com.